This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to History of Science, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. This is Pamela Fuentes, your host for this episode. I am the communications officer of the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at the University of Toronto. Today, I am particularly happy because I have the opportunity to talk with a professor from that institute, Dr. Chen Pang Yang, about his new book, Transforming Noise, A History of its Science and Technology from Disturbing Sounds to Informational Errors, 1900-1955. This book was published by Oxford University Press very recently. Chen Pang, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Pamela. Well, I briefly mentioned that you are a professor at the University of Toronto, but can you tell us more about yourself and how you came to write Transforming Noise? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you. So um, I am um, an associate professor at the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology, University of Toronto. So uh, my areas of research and teachings include history of physics, engineering technology, and um digital cultures and digital information technologies, um, computer science in general from the late 19th century to the present. Um, So I got training both in uh, history of science and technology and also in electrical engineering. So, um, and this is my background, short background. So um, I came up with this idea of writing a book on noise uh, when I was working on my PhD dissertations in the history of science. So at that time, my dissertation topic was about uh, radio wave propagation studies in the early 20th century. And that ended up with um, my my first book published with University of Chicago Press. Um, But in the process of um, researching into that history, I encountered, I found that um, there was, um, well, so the historical actors actually have very active discussions about how to uh, deal with different kinds of what they conceive noise in their telecommunication systems like radio, wireless telegraphy, um, so they talk about interference from adjacent channels or um, atmospheric uh, discharge that cause what they call statics or strays, and also what they call so electronic noise, which were pretty much the um, fluctuations of electric currents in electronic circuits like um, vacuum tubes, amplifiers, or resistors. So this different kinds of um, what they conceive noise interests me because um, noise um, we would imagine is uh, started with a purely sonic um, ideas that was associated with sounds. But then um, by this period, which was 1920s, um, scientists, engineers were already, already talking about noise as something more abstract and some, than that and something not necessarily related to sound. So that opened up my um, sort of curiosity and then I probed a little further and um, and um, from a bigger picture point of view, it is indeed very curious and strange um, because when we go back to the early 20th century and before, noise was purely um, sonic attribute, meaning disturbing sounds, right? So if we check um, like old dictionaries in English or Germans or French or other languages, we can um, see all this etymological semantics refer to noise as um, disturbing sounds. But then by the mid-20th century, um, 
um, we begin to see that this ref reference to noise as some um, disturbance and errors to informations and signals. So today we're living in the data-rich world. Um, so we encounter noise everywhere, but not necessarily in the sonic and audio context, right? So in, in the stock market, um, we we say that oh, okay, there's a lot of noise in the stock market, um, in the financial markets, in um, gene expressions of um, human genomics. We talk about the noise in the gene genomic circuits, in the genomic um, pathways. Uh, we also talk about noise from like um, the um, uh, gravitational wave um, measuring data from the remote galaxies, which had uh, very little to do with sound. So where does this come from? How did noise transform as a concept from disturbing sounds in the early 20th century and before to informational errors by the mid 20th century? So this kind of historical transformation interests me and I probe further and further into it and I found a whole wealth of histories um, underlying this transformation. So this constitutes the major motivation for me to write this book. And definitely, I think the narrative of the book really brings us to each little or big transformation in concepts and technology. Uh, I particularly recommend the listeners to take a look, of course, at the entire book. But when you talk about etymology, it's really fascinating where the where the word comes from, as you already mentioned. And in fact, there is a quote in your book that I think encapsulates the way you describe the history of sound. You highlighted that, and I quote, a story of noise is a story of modern life in a nutshell, end of quote. And definitely I think that is what you do in your book. So just to have an example about these changes in the history of technology related to sound, how do the sounds of cracking and hissing relate to the early years of sound reproduction technologies? And what does this tell us about modernity at the turn of the 20th century? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, here we're talking about sound reproduction. And um, I would like to argue that reproduction was a critical issue in the early 20th century. Um, and at this time, um, there was indeed there was already um, um, quite sophisticated industrial manufacturings and we begin to see mass media and communication technologies. Um, the societies became different with these um, introductions of these um, uh, mass communications and mass media and um, and also mass production. So uh, so these sort of technological and um, infrastructural backbones influence um, to a large extent um, um, humans' attitude toward culture, toward life, and toward the artwork. So I guess a very famous work. Um, um, during this period of time was um, published by um, the German th theorist, thinker, Walter Benjamin. So he published in 1935, The um, the, the Nature of Arts and the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Um, so in that work, um, Benjamin talked about like, how these abilities of technologically reproduce artistic work actually um, challenge the traditional concepts of the auras or um, um, kind of authorities um, and authenticities of artistic work, right? So in particular, he was interested in um, film, movie films, um, and also, of course, printing uh, reproductions of the visual arts. But in the in the context that I am interested in, I think there's a different meanings about reproduction, right? So in a sonic context, uh, sound reproduction means, um, first of all, um, the sounds which was pre previously elusive could now be captured and uh, recorded on um, um, things like um phonograph records um and and moreover so when the sound reproduction technology um progressed to some extent so that people begin to use it not just for 
like um, uh, for fun, like toys, but or for dictation machines um, for office use, like um, Thomas Edison originally perceived when he um, introduced phonograph. But uh, when they begin, when people begin to use this as um, as an instrument for listening to music, then fidelity became the issue, right? So reproduction um, in this uh, musical recreational context became um, a, um, a preoccupation with reproducing sound with minimum uh, minimum disturbance and minimum interference with high fidelity. So it is in this context that uh, the sounds like no, like cracking and hissings uh, you can find from the early phonograph became uh, more and more noticeable to the users, to consumers, but also to technologists, to inventors like Addison's and his company. So by the early 20th century in the 1910s or so, this sort of preoccupation with high fidelity phonographs due to its use in music, um, they led um, to this notions of surface noise, which refer to the sounds, the hissing and cracking sounds um, due to, they believe, the surface in unevenness on the record surface. Um, and then that opened up whole discussions and whole experimental explorations on how to cope with the hissing and the cracking surface noise on phonographs. So this gives noise a different meaning. So that means noise was not just about sound, disturbing sound, but it was associated with the material qualities of the recording media, which is the, the phonograph cylinders or, um, or disc. And chapter four describes another significant transformation in the fields of acoustics that happened during the first decades of the 20th century. You tell us that it shifted from being closely related to music, intellectual and aesthetic purposes, as you just described, to the emergence of an engineering field. Can you explain more about electroacoustics and why measuring intensity, loudness, frequency, and other aspects related to sounds was so important at the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, electroacoustics refer to a series of technologies that um, could convert sounds into electric signals or electric currents or voltage and vice versa, right? So electroacoustics started with the introductions of this new devices such as microphones or speaker phones uh, or uh, loudspeakers or telephones. So these devices, um, trans well, in the engineering term, transduces the um, uh, sounds as like mechanical vibrations of air into electric currents. And then um, they could... Um, transmit this electric current from one place to another using wires and then they could um, do something else to the electric currents like filtering it amplifying it and finally convert it back to sound so this is the idea of electroacoustics so electroacoustic was important because it's um provided a leeway to convert sounds into something else, another kind of physical quantity. And in the early 20th century, it was much easier to process um electric um currents or voltage as signals than processing sounds directly as mechanical vibrations. So this gave engineers and technologists a lot of flexibilities and opportunities to um to, to manipulate and to tinker with this different electric signals. So this is that is the importance of the electroacoustics down to um early 20th century soundscapes, technological soundscape. Um, and um, the metrologies of um, the sounds associated with electroacoustics uh, played an a especially significant role in the history of noise because um, it was the introductions of such measuring instruments that um, made possible the measurements of noise, right? So um, before the early 20th century, uh, noise was 
um, perceive as um, like um, a disturbing sonic phenomenon, but um, um, both the general public and the experts, professional, have little means to measure or quantify the um, intensities or frequency range or whatever physical attributes of noise. Well, they did begin to quantify and measure um, sounds, but um, mostly in the context of musical sounds. Um, um, but then by the late 19th and early 20th century, these new technologies provided opportunity to quantify noise um, in terms of its intensity, as you said, or frequencies or um, some other, even some other characteristics, right? So, but then um, as soon as uh, engineers, technologists begin to quantify noise with this measuring instrument, um, um, they begin to employ this kind of measurement to something which they didn't necessarily attribute to noisy sounds. For example, uh, they use the similar instruments and similar method to measure uh, the atmospheric discharge, um, which caused the um, sort of hissing interference on the receiving sides of radio communic wireless communications, or they measure the um, what they call the electronic noise, which was basically the uh, the, the the random fluctuations associated with the physics uh, fundamental physics of electronic circuit components such as resistors or uh, vacuum tubes, right? So these quantities or these physical attributes they could represent physical processes like atmospheric discharge or like um, random fluctuations of electrons in the tube. They're not necessarily sounds, but they were measures in the same context as sounds. So this measuring device is actually provided an opportunity to um, clandestinely transform the meanings of noise and broaden the, the meaning of noise to refer to those physical processes, right? But so, so that's one important thing. But the other important thing is that um, these measuring devices actually, uh, they're, they're struggling between uh, what kind of thing to measure. So on the one hand, you have measuring devices which aim to gauge the intensities or frequencies or other uh, physical or uh, the energy levels, um, other physical uh, attributes of the processes. But on the other hand, you have some other measuring devices which aim to measure the what they call the audibility of noise, which means that um, what was the sort of loudness that the listeners perceive on the part of noise when they employ the measurements, right? So this is different. So the loudness in this context is different from um, intensity because intensity referred to physical attribute. The loudness is more a physiological attribute. So is the is noise subjective or objective? Is the measurement supposed to be subjective or objective? So this was an ongoing debate um, in the 1920s and 30s. And this actually indicate that even though you have measuring devices from electroacoustics that make noise more and more abstract and dissociate from its original uh, sonic context, but in reality, in practice, actually that dissociation was hard to materialize because um, the, uh, it was oftentimes associated with sounds, even though now you begin to perceive it as random fluctuations of electrons or atmospheric discharge. But um, in terms of its output or its realization, you still perceive it in terms of sound. So this shows the very entangled relationship between noise and sound throughout the early, the first part of the 20th century. And of course, for all of these transformations, uh, there was a lot of work from scientists, uh, mathematicians, researchers, and they developed all of these theories and mathematical language to understand these uh, changes. So let me tell you to those that are listening to us, the book is divided into three parts. The second one contains three chapters in which Chen Pang explains the development of mathematical representations and theories related to noise. 
in there, we find equations and several names and stories of scientists and researchers. So just to get a sense of what you explain in those pages, tell us what is the importance of Brownian motion and please talk a little bit about some of the people related to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you. So um, Brownian motion originally referred to a specific kind of phenomenon, which is if you take a body of water and then dope some small particles like pollen powder particles in the water, and then under microscope, you can see those particles undergoing like continuous uh, agitations, um, like random fluctuations. So this was first discovered in the 19th, sorry, in the 1820s by a British Scottish botanist, Robert Brown. So that's why again, this name Brownian motion. Um, but then um, by the early 20th century, um, there were a number of physicists who um, gave um, very fascinating and impressive theories about uh, uh, impressive theories about the Brownian motion. So uh, they um, refuted the um, the um, uh, popular idea throughout the 19th century that Brownian motion was due to like um, the actions of living organisms. Um, in, instead, they believed that Brownian motion was the direct consequence of um, statistical mechanics or statistical physics. In other words, Brownian motion um, was due to a large number of collisions um, of the water molecules or fluid molecules onto these powder particles. And this random motions of molecules at non-zero temperature actually gave rise to the random motions of this much larger particles. So that's the idea of Brownian motion. Um, so why is Brownian motion important to this story of noise? Because Brownian motion... Um, mark the first step toward developing a more or less general theory, mathematical theory, um, physical theories about random fluctuations um, in the early 20th century. So the idea is that um, the um, in our physical world, in our material worlds, um, something even though you can see something or you perceive something to be highly uniform, like our air or you get a glass of water, so it looks like pretty homogeneous and uniform, but um, still, according to statistical physics, um, from time to time, you can um, see a pockets of like denser air in this air in this small areas pumping up and then disappears and another time you can see these pockets of uh, water with the higher densities or higher temperatures in these regions and then it disappears and disappears so this kind of phenomenon is called a random fluctuation and of course in normal circumstances it's hard to observe um, but um, the Brownian motion provided exactly a window or uh, an opportunity to, um, to, to, to observe this kind of random fluctuation. And it also uh, offered a refutation for longstanding belief since the late 19th century that this kind of random fluctuation at the microscopic, molecular, or uh, atomic level, they're averaged out in the process of large number, uh, the law of large numbers, but actually they're not, right? So um, even though you have a lot of fluctuations at microscopic levels at all directions, um, but they still don't average out. So this is, um, so, so the, the study of the Brownian motion in the early 20th century um, opened up this new directions on the study of random fluctuations and associated with that, uh, physicists and mathematicians also introduce this um notions of so-called random processes in the um in the theory of probabilities and um in the statistics right so uh random process refer to a random sequence of events in the discrete form or a sort of random agitating curve like a drunk like a drunker walking um, sporad, ran, um walking 
um, without any patterns from this zigzag from this direction to that direction. So the theory of random process or stochastic process meant to provide some mathematical ground for understanding this kind of behavior. So the important um, historical actors in the early studies of the Brownian motion and stochastic processes included, of course, the household name Albert Einstein. So he's um, 1905 paper on Brownian motion was considered one of his um, um, sort of groundbreaking work in um, his miraculous years of 1905. Um, but in addition to Einstein, there were uh, Margens Molchowski. Uh, he was a Polish Austrian physicist at this time working um, in Lviv. Uh, so we all know Lviv from the um, Russian Ukraine war. But at this time, Lviv uh, had the name Lvov, uh, who's a part of Austrian Hungarian Empire. So Smolhovsky was a professor at the university there. Um, and we also see. Um, <clears throat> We also see Paul Langevin. Um, so he was a French physicist, um, one of the uh, sort of founders of quantum mechanics. Um, and he, at this time, he was working in Paris um, and becoming a well-established physicist. And then there was a more marginal figure who did not work on the Brownian motions as a physical problem, but work on the um, uh, a mathematical theory of, of um, stochastic financial market, and his name was Louis Bachelier. Uh, so he was long forgotten for a large part of the 20th century, but his name came back as the mathematical theory of finance, like the Black Shows um, modeling for pricing financial products, uh, became Nobel Prize laureates in the um, in the late um, 20th and early 21st century. So Bachelier was developing a theory of random process based on his observations of Paris stock markets or derivative markets. Um, uh, prices. So these were the sort of important figures for the early uh, work on the Brownian motion. But then uh, moving to the 1920s and 30s, so there are three ways to study random processes in particular and Brownian motion in general, uh, sorry, random processes in general and Brownian motion in particular. So one way was advanced by uh, physicists. These were statistical physicists who were preoccupied with the um, understanding the phenomenon in a similar way as Einstein, Smoltkowski, these people tried to understand. Uh, so they came from the intellectual traditions of statistical mechanics. And this th second group of people were electrical engineers who were um, trying to um, understand all kinds of interference and noise in electrical communication systems, like the electronic noise, um, etc. And the third group of people uh, involved mathematicians who were trying to give a more mathematical, axiomatic, uh, abstract formulations of the random processes. So I should also add, which I forget to say, but I think it's meaningful to mention that the study of Brownian motion became uh, relevant to uh, in the engineering technological context because in the 1910s and 20s, a number of scientists working at industrial laboratories such as um, uh, Siemens Hauske Gesellschaft in Berlin and AT&T Bell Labs in New York State. So these people included Walter Schottky, um, John J. Um, J. B. Johnson and Harry Nyquist. Um, so they um, discovered that these random there were intrinsic random fluctuations in electronic circuits, um, like what they call the shot noise or thermal noise, and they're due to the molecular random agitations at the electronic uh, for each individual electrons. Um, but these individual electronic agitations can give rise to the fluctuations of electric currents, which could affect the performance of telecommunication, performance of sound reproduction. So in this context, the Brownian motion theory became relevant because they believe 
that um, the Brownian motion theory could provide them with some theoretical mathematical tool to characterize electronic noise and therefore to enhance and improve the efficiency of telecommunication systems. So it was in this context that this purely theoretic or purely scientific studies of the Brownian motion began to gain some practical technological significances. So yeah, that's a long story, but um, try to encapsulate in a few um, some paragraphs here. Yeah, an, an interesting story too. And talking about these practical technological applications of sound research, during the 1940s, you, you tell us, noise was investigated for its implications on the performance and improvement of military technologies in the context of World War II. Mm -hmm. What was the MIT Radiation Laboratory and what is its role in developing defense technology based on sound research? Yes. Um, so, um, yes, MIT Radiation Lab figure large in the last part of my book um, and because... As I mentioned um, just a few while ago, so in the 1920s and 30s, after the sort of pioneering work on the Brownian motions and the studies of electronic noise making connection to the Brownian motion theories, after that, during the interwar periods, there were, there were three groups of people with three different research traditions working on uh, random noise. They were physicists and um, engineers and also mathematicians. So these three different approaches, different research traditions actually converged um, during World War II for the urgencies of wartime research and development. So uh, what happened at MIT Radiation Lab was one element or one aspect of this synthesis and convergence of the three research traditions toward a more general and universal conceptualizations of noise. So um, MIT Radiation Lab, of course, many people know that um, this was a, a major um, R&D research development undertaking um, during World War II um, to develop advanced weapon systems. So in this context, it was developments of radar. So during World War II, MIT Radiation Lab designed um, most of the U.S. military's radar systems in the Army and, and also in the in the in the navy um however what in in my book um what i look at with respect to mit radiation lab was not their developments of um, hardwares or devices or systems of radars instead um i pay attention to a small but significant group of people at mit radiation labs which um focus on what they call the theoretical problem. So this book was so sorry. This group was led by um, uh, physicist George Uhlenbeck. So he was um, a professor at University of Michigan, but originally came from trained in born born and trained in the Netherlands. Um, so he was a pioneers of uh, quantum physics in the 1920s, and also he was an adamant. Um, members of this um, physicist approach to uh, random process to the random fluctuations in the 1920s and 30s. So he was a statistical physicist, uh, but then during World War II, he was involved in the MIT Radiation Lab's theory group um, to try to work on what they call the threshold signal problem. So the idea is that uh, when you have the radar system um, and you receive the, like you detect the target on the radar screen, the target was often is often contaminated by all kinds of noise as random fluctuations like um, flutterings or like uh, blanking on the screen. So, uh, so how do you distinguish uh, signal from noise? How do you say that, oh, okay, so the, the, the brightness of the spot on the screen is strong enough so that it must mean an enemy signal or it Basically, it's just a false alarm. It's just due to the, the the random the scattering from the ocean surface as a cluster as cluttering, or it's due to the electronic noise in the radar system, etc. So, um, Ullenbeck led 
a small group of young, enthusiastic individual researchers, and they work on this theoretical problem of um, target detection, which meant to uh, find a statistical criterion in which which tells us that, um, okay, so when the signal is at this level, and then what is the opportunity or what is the probability for the signal to be the actual real signal of enemy targets? Or and what is the probability that this is not a signal but noise, right? So that is this um, sort of problem in the random processes. So to deal with this problem, Uhlenbeck utilized uh, his intellectual resource back to the interwar periods, and he considered all this kind of noise on the radar screen as something similar to Brownian motions, which he was familiar with in, during the interwar years. And he considered a radar as a kind of galvanometer um, or a small, like, sensitive instrument to detect currents, right? So this kind of galvanometer instrument was influenced by the agitations as a, as a form of Brownian motion. So that experimental situation was studied by uh, physicists during the interwar periods, but then here Uhlenbeck borrowed those ideas and directly applied them to the radar problem and developed further a theory of target detection. So this was sort of the relevant part of MIT radiation's work um, on, uh, to the history of noise. And like this one, in your book, there are many interesting stories about researchers. In fact, I think your book shows the migration of knowledge, people, and ideas during the years you studied. From all of the researchers you presented, there is one that caught my attention, and I want to take this opportunity for you to tell us more about the life and contributions of Ming Chen Wang. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Ming Chen Wang, or um, Chinese pronunciation is Wang Mingzhen. Uh, so she was one of the rare historical actors in the book. Um, for she was um, the only um, Asian and um, Asian um, or Asian female Asian um, scientist or technologist appeared in this book. So. Um, her experience and career was fantastic. So she was born in um, the south southeastern city of Suzhou in China, and she grew up in China and got uh, training in physics in China. So his, her family was um, um, a quite prominent um, scholars, intellectual family. So she had brought two brothers who would become uh, academicians of the Chinese Academy of Science. And her sister was a gynecologist. Um, and this was, we're talking about the early 20th century. But even that's the case, even her family was prominent and wealthy, but she still encountered severe challenges in getting higher educations and pursuing a career in science. For example, her father, her, her parents were against her further pursuits in like uh, getting uh, master's and PhD degrees. Instead, they uh, arranged a marriage for her. So she resisted all this and fought back his way, her way, and then uh, managed to get um, educated in physics at um, Yanjing University in um, today's Beijing. But then, um, so she wanted to study abroad in the United States, but um, but she didn't have enough resource for that. Um, and then World War II or the Sino-Japanese War began. At that time, she was teaching at um, Nanjing, uh, Jinling College in Nanjing. And then um, her brother advised her to just leave the city as soon as possible, and which she did. And that was fortunate because just a, a couple of months later, Japanese army um, occupied Nanjing and the Nanjing massacre occurred. So uh, eventually, with the help of um, her um, her boss at the college, uh, she was able to get resource and to go to University uh, to University of Michigan for PhD study. So she studied under George Uhlenbeck um, and doing statistics, working on a thesis on statistical physics. And after graduation, uh, that was World War II, right? So Uhlenbeck um, recruited her into the radiation lab. So she became one of Uhlenbeck's um, assistant researchers uh, working on this 
um, rate, uh, threshold signal problem in radar target detection. So after World War II, uh, Wang Mingzhen came back to the theory of the Brownian motion. So she co-wrote an article with um, Ullenbeck on the theory of Brownian motion, which summarized uh, the primary approach, uh, the, the, the primary results of the physicist's approach to the Brownian motion, but also synthesized the insight from engineering mathematicians during World War II. So this was sort of um, one of the most important works for the physics of random fluctuations in the 1940s. Um, but then she didn't continue her career in the United States. So um, when Korean War broke out, and this was uh, like three years after the establishment of People's Republic of China. So she decided to go back to China uh, with her husband, um, and she did. And then she was arranged to teach at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Um, but she didn't do much uh, research from that point on. And then Cultural Revolution happened, and she, because of some like political or interpersonal complexity, she was put on jail. Uh, for years. Um, so eventually um, she was relieved from the jail and she was giving back to her position. But um, unfortunately, her health condition deteriorated and she was not able to, to do further research. So uh, when I was doing archival research at the um, University of Michigan for the uh, Uhlenbeck papers, I came across with uh, Wang Mingzhen's correspondence with Uhlenbeck. So she wrote this touching but sad letters um, years after she returned back to China and then suffering from the Cultural Revolution and she explained her condition. I Yeah, I think that's a um, teary moment. And that also testified to the, I don't know, the catastrophic um, um, periods um, through in the 20th century, not only in World War II, but also quite long after World War II. So, um, so Wang Mingzhen represented to me a kind of missing opportunities that uh, she had the potential and she did produce significant work on the theoretical physical studies of noise. But then for all kinds of reasons, she didn't continue, extended her career along the direction that she already, she, she, originally projected her to. So, yeah, so I think in the nutshell, uh, her life and career trajectory represented, oh, not represented, or showcased the um, a um, uh, positions and experience of um, female scientists, um, especially from the global south, um, <laughs> their challenges and their opportunities um, in doing science during this period. But on the larger scale, you can also see that how the war, political movements, like um, this kind of structurals and geopolitical things can uh, change entirely the life trajectories of individuals. So, yeah, that's uh, that's th this human components, the uh, personal elements. Um, I think they're all there in the book, even though the books, there a lot. Uh, the book is um, has a lot, lot of contents about like theories, experiments, equations, etc. But the human components are not missing here. Definitely, I think it's a comprehensive story, right? That touches upon theory and the human experience, etc. And there are many interesting topics we could not cover in this podcast because of the time, but I really invite people to take a look at the book. But before concluding, I think a good way of letting people know about some of the topics you cover is talking about the rich variety of sources you used. In the pages of the book, we can see uh, advertisement, letters, etc. But tell us more about the sources you use, and that might give us some clues about the topics we didn't have the chance to talk about. Mm, yeah, thank you. So um, the sources I use, um, well, um, I used, um, this is a long time work, so I spent a lot of time on this. So I use a wealth of um, primary sources. Um, so, for for example, for the archival sources, I visited eleven archives um, in the United States, um, UK, Germany, France, and Poland. So, um, so many of these archives of 
bounds or papers of individual scientists like the Uhlenbeck papers at the University of Michigan, which I mentioned, or Langevin papers in at ESPCI at Paris, or uh, the Walter Schottky papers at Deutsches Museum in um, in Munich. Um, but there are also some like um, corporate archives or institutional archives like the AT&T archives um, in New Jersey and also uh, the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory archives in the UK. Um, so um, I utilize uh, significantly these archival materials and sources, the correspondences, letters, um, the internal publications, um, um, research reports, so these kind of things. Um, but there are also primary sources available on the internet or uh, in the published domain. So, uh, for example, IEEE has a pretty um, comprehensive set of oral history interview with Claude Shannon, uh, the inventor of information theory. He is also a figure, historical figure in my book. So I utilize the um, uh, online versions of Shannon's oral history interviews. And also Uhlenbeck interviews is part of um, the quantum history project that Thomas Hugh, sorry, Thomas Kuhn uh, initiated uh, years ago. Um, so Kuhn and his student interview a bunch of physicists who participated in the developments of early quantum physics. So all this oral history interviews are now available on the uh, American Institute of Physics website. So I also utilize them. And you also mentioned rightly that um, I utilize um, um, materials from published sources like this old trade journals, so uh, advertisements um, and um, yeah, to the catalogs, um, and also a lot of um, publications from the period academic periodicals, uh, the major um, the major journals for uh, research in physics and mathematics and um, Electric engineering, such as physical review and Annalen de Physique in German. Um, so um, I draw on this published primary sources a lot. So that means I have to look into uh, the uh, sort of these papers uh, written by historical actors um, a while ago, some in arcane languages, uh, phrasings, and in different languages, and also a lot of technical representations that with the different formats than our format today. So there's a lot of work to decode uh, what really this contents means. So that occupies significant, significant amounts of time in my for my research on this book. Um, yeah, so these are pretty uh, much the kinds of sources that I use for writing this book. Fascinating. Well, I don't want to end this conversation without giving you the opportunity to add to the conversation. Yeah, well, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I think the only, well, of course, this is a large book, so it's like uh, almost 500 pages. <laughs> um, um, so it's it's a thick book to read, um, and there are a lot of things to talk about. Um, but the only thing I want to add um, before ending this podcast interview is that um, I think this book, writing this book, give me an opportunity to explore um, a specific kind of historical writing, right? Because noise as a historical topic doesn't necessarily have a natural boundary. So oftentimes when we write about the history of science and technology, uh, it's easier to focus on particular periods of times or group of peoples or geographic areas. So if as long as you have a specific topic to deal with, um, that is okay. Uh, so the boundary is there. The boundary is kind of natural. So you, you know how to narrow down and um, spe specify your focus. But noise is basically everywhere. So it's um, here and there, encompassings and uh, scattering all over the place. So how do you write such a history? A lot of this de depends on how uh, you define the scope of the project. So I find that this is a um, challenging but also fascinating um, pathway to go through. So, um, well... Of course, this is not the first time that um, 
an overarching topic um, is um, is developed um, in the book in the history of science and technology. So uh, some scholars have worked on topics like objectivities or technology as such, uh, as a term or as a concept, or efficiency as a concept in the history of science and technology. And they um, came up with some useful frameworks like um, historical epistemology or historical ontology to try to write this kind of history in which you don't have an uh, obvious spatial time, geographical uh, or thematic boundaries. Um, so what I'm trying to do here in the history of noise is, is to try to explore this kind of um, historical writing. And I do agree with um, those scholars subscribing to historical ontology and historical epistemology that, okay, th there are indeed some significant similarities between this work and those in historical ontology, historical epistemology, because they're all these are tracing the long-term developments, right? But on the other hand, I want to emphasize here that um, uh, in this book, there are more uh, stronger material elements. Um, so by uh, looking into epistemology and ontology and theories, I don't mean that everything is conceptual, right? Everything is ideas uh, and theories. Um, there are a, large, a lot of technological engineering developments. So this material culture, this experimental situations, the, so these material aspects are important for those conceptual, theoretical, mathematical developments. So this material dimension is what I want to emphasize here in this book. And also, um, I want to say that um, um, this book doesn't span like across um, millennials or centuries, uh, uh, which you often see in the works of historical ontology and historical epistemology. It's uh, spanned a range of 50 years. Mm -hmm. So yes, indeed, the topic is vast, but you can see the sort of actual interpersonal connections between those historical actors, right? So it's not, so the, the, the connections in this different regions in, uh, or in this different fields in the book are not artificial or they're not conceptually friend from the authors. So the connect, their connections are actually there. Um, the historic, the historical actors Actually, so the the physicists moving to mathematics and mathematicians moving to engineering, um, and they talk to each other. They circulate their knowledge and they circulate their materials. So these connections are real. So even though the topics are vast and diverse, the connections are uh, the historical historical connections are not what I impose, right? As the author impose. So um, in any case, this is a the kind of historical writing I am trying to explore, which is not necessarily confined to a specific geographical um, temporal scope, um, but um, it's a more macroscopic. But on the other hand, it's not too vast and too narrow. Uh, it's too broad. Um, um, there are still connections to be tra uh, that you can trace. And also, I want to stress uh, both the conceptual intellectual dimensions and also the technological material dimensions, the making dimensions. So both the episteme and techna, so these elements are there in the book. Yes, definitely. Well, Chenpang, I want to thank you for being on the show today talking about transforming noise. It was a very interesting conversation. Take care. Thank you very much, Pamela. And thanks everybody for listening to History of Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Pamela Fuentes. Until next time. <music>